I understand that you investigated other murders other than Tupac, but just focusing, since that's the focus of the podcast, focusing on Tupac, looking back 25 years, what's been the worst of it? The worst of it? (laughs) I'm not attacking you, but it's since you contacted me. Learning all the things that have been said, that would be the worst of it, because <laughs> I, I had no idea. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. 25 years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing the gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. 25 years later, once again, an exclusive. I interview now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've heard any of Tupac's songs, you've heard some of the language lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast. Enough said. Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Episode 7, 25 Years After On September 7, 1996, the day Tupac was shot, the top movie was Bulletproof, directed by the esteemed Ernest Dickerson. And the film featured Damon Wayans, Adam Sandler, and no, I don't remember it either. The top song in America was Macarena by Los Del Rio. I do remember that one. Hey, Macarena. In the UK, where you are listening to this podcast a lot, by the way, and thanks, the Spice Girls had the top hit, Wannabe, as in, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. The majority of voters in the US really, really wanted Bill Clinton. He was the president at the time. Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia, and a former KGB foreign intelligence officer was part of his administration. His name? Vladimir Putin. Princess Diana had just made her divorce from Prince Charles official. If she was listening to Somebody Done Somebody Wrong songs on demand, it's likely she would have been listening to CDs, short for compact discs. Back then, I'll admit it, I had a boombox up in the crib. And when I went flying, which I did a lot, I would take along my portable CD player. My collection included the Fugees, The Sounds of Blackness, Anita Baker, Joan Amitrading, Steve Arrington, of course, Grace Jones, And on September 7th, 1996, 25 years ago, yes, my CD collection included Tupac Shakur. You leave homicide 
2001, you become a sergeant then. Well, the first thing you do is you've got a squad of officers and they're assigned a geographical area of wherever, of the Las Vegas Valley area. So we had X amount of sectors and beats that we were responsible for. So I was assigned, I think my first squad had 10 or 11 officers and it was on graveyard and we had a huge area back then. And so I supervised those folks and they did calls for service, you know, the things you see on TV, so to speak. And then I moved to another area command on day shift and I was there for several years, same thing. And then I put in for and got the assignment out at McCarran International Airport. And initially I was assigned a squad and a squad at the airport. These are the people that you see at the checkpoints, uh, driving vehicles on the interior perimeter, the fence line, uh, out in baggage, just different areas of the, of the airport providing... Law. Working with Homeland Security? Side you know, by side. I'm trying to remember who we fell under then because eventually you have Homeland Security and all that, you know. But you would work with TSA, you would work with the federal air marshals, you'd work with anybody coming through the airport. We did a lot of assisting other agencies. And then at one point I was responsible for a squad like that, and then the investigative squad. These were, these were police officers at the airport, but they were involving, they did strictly investigations. You know, baggage theft is a big deal at airports. You always hear about people, their bag being stolen or whatever. So you were talking baggage claim. You know, it's amazing how much stuff's being stolen behind, like, before it gets to baggage claim, the people handling the bags to and from the planes and stuff like that. Because we had some big cases where uh, military rifles were taken. And it turned out to be airline employees. Wow. I remember I did a story after I left AMW and I was in Lagos, Nigeria. And you would see all this baggage sealed in plastic right all this luggage yeah and i just felt they must have a problem there yeah so and so i supervised the regular squad them and then i had the administrative sergeant duties and then eventually we got another sergeant i just had the, the investigative squad and administrative duties and the administrative sergeant was the one who attended the meetings you'd have meetings of involving all of the airline, the, the station managers for airlines and the baggage claim managers and vendors and all that. And then you had some security meetings involving different people with TSA, federal air marshals and all that. So that was part of the job. And then, you know, airports have to do, uh, security training so to speak they do scenarios out on the airfield and stuff throw out a hypothetical situation and then everybody's got to respond to it and do whatever we did that kind of stuff and then also as the administrative sergeant i had to do things like if the president or the vice president came you'd have to 
draw up an operations plan for our part of it. Cause you know, like the president, you've got him landing at the airport and you got things going on within the airport. But as soon as he leaves that gate, that's a whole different world out there. That's a different bunch of officers and motors and you got motorcade routes and all kinds of stuff. It's, there's a lot of work involved in it. You're dealing, you're working with the secret service and such. So did that. And then I retired and that's it. <laughs> Any outstanding cases you remember from those days post Oh. homicide? Anything that sticks out at the airport? Any heists? Well, we had some pretty, pretty interesting, like I said, baggage issues because you had a lot of military going through at the time. So is there a the, base nearby? Well, we have Nellis Air Force Base out there, but most of it's army type stuff, you know, and In you got transit. a lot of reserve units and stuff. And the military does things differently from when I'm in. They do a lot of commercial flying with equipment and stuff. Uh, I just know baggage theft was a big deal. We really targeted, and I know we made a couple of critical breakthroughs there because I remember one of the station managers wrote a nice letter to the sheriff commending the folks that did the investigation. You know, they're the ones that did the work, you know, uncovering something because any airline man station manager will tell you they had, I don't know how it is today, but they have X amount of dollars in loss because baggagers, baggage is being stolen and people file claims or whatever. And this one particular airline was having a big problem and our troops found uh, developed suspects and made arrests on it and i i guess it really helped out because the the station manager wrote the letter saying a year ago they were paying out x amount of dollars and because of this it just dwindled dramatically so you know that it's nothing glamorous i would say we'd we we'd help homeland security on some things involving foreign nationals i'll say without going into details <laughs> people be surprised what goes through las vegas from other countries <laughs> that are, are of questionable character and as you walked away from the two Pak Shakur investigation in 2001. How active was it at the end of your involvement? Give me a sense. You know, there were still calls coming in. You still had the stuff going on with other agencies. And when Biggie got killed, well, that just, you know, now you've got them both together and that just created all kinds of things going on. Uh, you left a few years after that. I would say I would say I wasn't I wasn't traveling like we were in the beginning. You know that kind of stuff was more or less over. I think a lot of name calling was starting up then. You know, pointing the finger at your investigation because this isn't solved or that isn't solved. That's I guess that's the nature of the beast. But, but uh, by the end, the tips were dwindling. You, even though you say you know who did it, you, I mean, what was the status of the case for you as you left? First of all, I don't think, I don't think 
people, and when I say people, the general public or the witnesses or anything, I got the impression a lot of people lost interest. The guy, well, Suge Knight certainly lost interest. Why do you say that? Because he was incarcerated? Well, you, 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 well, one, he got incarcerated, then he was out and he was doing other things. He got himself in trouble during, well, and that wasn't necessarily while I was still in homicide. He got himself in trouble with that incident where they were filming some Compton movie and hits, hit someone with a car or truck right. or something. We are going to address that in a bit. But in terms of your analysis of the status of the case when you left? It was still active. I mean, the case was there. Uh, you know, you would get tips. If there was something that I could work on, I would. But you got to realize I've still got a bunch. There's still other things going on. There's still... I, I don't know if some people think you get this case and that's your life 24-7. Well, I would bet from the night, I'll just say from the time Tupac Shakur died until I left homicide, I probably worked 90-some more murders. And you worked them all with your partner, Mike Franks, and Kevin? Up until he retired... I want to say Mike retired a year before I left Homicide. So then I had another partner that I worked with. But Kevin was my sergeant from the beginning to end, the Tupac shooting to the end. He wasn't my sergeant in the very beginning. There was another sergeant in there, but he ended up retiring. But from the Tupac case, Kevin was my sergeant through that whole period. And you retired and just walked away thinking what about your career at Las Vegas Metro and about the Tupac Shakur case? I didn't really think of it. I'm retired. So it seems like when you walked away, when you retired from Las Vegas Metro, you were Lot's wife or you were not Lot's wife. You didn't look back. You didn't turn into a column of salt. No, I didn't look back. It was, it's... Well, you got to figure when I retired, someone else had been working the Tupac case for 10 years. It's it's their case, and it really wasn't a whole lot of conversation. And, you know, if, if there was anything they needed from me, they knew where to find me when I was working. So, and I don't think since I've retired, I don't think anybody's contacted me from there for, about anything related to this. So when you look back, is there any one word you would use to describe that investigation that we're talking about 25 years later? I don't know that there's one thing because there were a lot of things that happened in that investigation that happened in a lot of investigations. You just get, you know, no cooperation on occasion from some people. I would say there was more mudslinging from other law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I can't think of any other case where I had this crap coming from other law enforcement agencies. So maybe that. Uh, obviously, the notoriety of it, the international attention of it probably was, well, it was 
that was the greatest one. There were some other cases that were big, but I don't know that they went international. And when you look back and you see how technology has changed and how that change in technology might have benefited this investigation, tell me your thoughts. Well, I don't know what kind of cameras they have out on the streets anymore. You know, this was pre 9-11. You know, once 9-11 happened, a lot of things happened. Cameras were starting to pop up in places that maybe the general public wasn't buying into. So maybe there had been some cameras in somewhere else. Uh, DNA technology is far superior today than it was back then. Uh, How might that have impacted your investigation? Well, the cartridge cases would have been the big deal. Uh, I'm sure they were checked for prints. You know, that's, you got to realize when evidence is submitted, you submit for different things. And at that time, prints was going to be the big deal. And people seem to think that automatically, because you got to load a a magazine with rounds that your fingerprint's going to be on the, the, the cartridge or whatever, it's just, you may have a smudge or something, but it's not necessarily true what you're going to get off it. TV's probably done an injustice on that. But today they've got this thing called touch DNA. You know, we didn't have touch DNA. I don't even, I don't know when touch DNA came about. I learned of it purely by accident many years later. And uh, maybe there was something on them cartridge cases. I would think that that's probably been done, an attempt was done. I mean, that's the investigators today know what they have the capability of getting off of, and that probably would have been one of the things if it was if it was avail if it could be done, because you figure the cartridge cartridges were loaded in there, so maybe there would have been some DNA on there. It doesn't necessarily mean it was the person that did the shooting, because. Anybody can load. You don't know. You don't know how many people this thing's been handed down through, but it would have been something, and maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know what they've got. Do you recall when you were involved in the investigation if there were any hints of fingerprints or any hints of DNA on the cartridges? No, there was nothing that was passed on to me that gave us a print that would be identifiable. You got to realize sometimes you may get a ridge or something. And you know, in the legal world, they've got to have X amount of points to do it. But I can tell you that if there would have been a print that was identifiable, but not in the legal world, meaning you couldn't go into court and say with 100% certainty it was it. But if there had been a print with a, that the latent examiner could say, this is your guy, I just can't say it in court. They'd have told me, and that wasn't there. What about any technology related to phones? Phone, well, we use we tried to use that on one particular phone, and that kind of got shot real quick, you know, when we did the pin register. We didn't, you got to have a phone number to go do something about it. And, you know, cell phones are, 
I don't know how they are today, but cell phones were a little more difficult. Landlines are a whole different story because they can do certain things. The tech guys can do certain things. Uh, I know if they have phones, you've got these computer people, these computer savvy people within police departments now that just do wonders off laptops and phones and with uh, withdrawing information out of them. But we didn't have any of that. So that potentially could have had an impact as well. It could have. Yeah, it could have. One thing that has really, really struck me, and I have looked at hours and hours and hours of videotapes related to people who were at death row, people who I met in the course of the investigation. And I really wonder, so many people are talking so many people have talked. I see Idi Amin, you knew as Malcolm. I see, you know, Keefe D, the uncle of Orlando Anderson. I see so many people talking and I wonder what that would have made in terms of a difference for your investigation. When I see them freely well, I, talking I, on YouTube. Yeah, and I don't know. I since our involvement with Malcolm Greenidge, I, have, I haven't seen any interviews with him per se, so I have no idea what he said. I don't, I don't even remember the last contact. Well, it would have been in Compton. <laughs> so that was the last time I had any contact Which was with Malcolm. About 25 years ago. Yeah, so, and especially since once I left Homicide, I wasn't watching any of that stuff. Right. But it just. And I know a lot of things came out, so I have no idea what was being said. And once I'm out of the picture, it's not my case. And it's not my job to go in there and stand over their shoulder and say, are you doing this and doing that? These folks know what they're doing. If, if there's something valuable for them, they're going to get it. But it's just very striking how loquacious. Some of the witnesses are oh some twenty five years later. And I'm sure they get I'm sure I'm sure they run into people today doing the same thing they did back then. Don't talk, don't want to say anything. But then they'll talk in other venues about it. And it's just a matter of do they really know anything or are they just flapping their lips? I don't know. And there have been so many books and movies and documentaries. It's extraordinary. And I'll say for, I mean, any other recollections you have, just looking back over these 25 years regarding the Tupac case, any other thoughts? I think it was, I think it, well, I think it was a solvable case early on if there'd have been some cooperation, people have to understand if folks don't want to tell the police what they saw, they're doing nothing but harming the case. You know, I mean, the police can go in and gather some information and have an inkling of what happened, but you know, gut feelings don't get you a prosecution. You need, you need cooperation, you need help from 
the public and any cop that tells you they can do it on their own is lying to you. You know, you, you do, you look for help from eyewitnesses or people that do something because if, if a person would have came come up to me and says, there's this guy that's talking to me and saying a lot. And it sounds from what we know to be good information. We have probably tried to see if they'd put a, a wire on or something to go talk and get something in, get something recorded. But we never got that. Well, in the search warrant from Compton, the search warrant affidavit, there seemed to be a number of people who said we heard this and he said that. And were they ever named? No. Seems to me they were all informants. I know there were a lot of nicknames thrown out in there. Hendog did this, Neckbone did that, and Orlando did this. But I think most of the source, most of the information was coming from, it was called a a confidential, reliable informant. Right. But wouldn't it be possible to wire the CRI? It would if we knew who it was, but... No one was sharing that information. Did you ever make that request to Compton PD? We talked to Compton PD about it, you know. What did they say? They never they they never offered up presenting anybody because they never did it for their own cases. You gotta realize that search warrant was developed. There's a misnomer that Compton PD and the Las Vegas PD worked together for that search warrant. It was signed by Tim Brennan solely. It was signed by Tim Brennan. That was a Compton Police Department search warrant. It wasn't a Las Vegas Police Department search warrant. There may have been some information in there that came from Las Vegas, but it was their case related to all, you know, after Tupac got shot, I guess all hell broke loose over there. People getting shot and all that. And all of that information in that search warrant was related to those cases. Well, those aren't Las Vegas. Those are shootings, murders, whatever happened in Compton may be related to Las Vegas. Correct. But the crime still occurs in Compton. Guess who has to prosecute that? Compton. As far as I know, and I, I can't say with absolute certainty, how many people got prosecuted based on the information from that search warrant? It was my understanding, though, that they served the search warrant in service of the Tupac Shakur investigation. Well, is that what they were supposed to be doing? If 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 you're telling me they made stuff up to help Las Vegas, no, they they did the oh, investigation. Okay. All right, they. Went out there. I hope you weren't telling me that. Oh no! Uh, pardon me if that's what I—that's yeah. what I was suggesting, or saying. My understanding is that they served these search warrants in in part to assist. This is what was going on in their community. Their gang investigators—they passed that information along to you to help with your case. Yeah, and and they did pass it on, and I did read through it. And there was a lot of hearsay in there, but there was no person who was an informant that was relayed to us 
that was a direct witness to the shooting. Everything they were getting was from people who heard someone else saying someone, who heard someone else saying someone. That's hearsay evidence. My, my point is, they had X amount of crimes occurring in their jurisdiction. Yes, I appreciate that they were trying to help us, but I would hope they were trying to help themselves either also because you're having all these events happening in your city. I would think that you would want to get those people off the street that are committing these crimes and you know the ones that are still alive or not shot or whatever was going on. And I don't remember... You know, I don't know for a fact how many, if any, were successfully prosecuted off of that for their crimes. There was nothing in that search warrant. There was nothing from, you know, I talked to Orlando Anderson. And no, I didn't talk. I did see something where someone said they sat in while I talked to Orlando Anderson. Well, the conversation I talk about Orlando Anderson happened out in the parking lot. It was just him and me. And I think there's videotape from yes. a media news person and it's just him and me. So the other things, there were other interviews and I'm not going to go into the details that came out of those from Compton or anything. Uh, we've already talked about some things that we overheard that were Raise questions for us. Right. But in terms of the whole notion of wiring somebody, my recollection of the affidavit is that there were people who said that Orlando was bragging about it. Those people, be they CRIs, would be the ones potentially who would be wired. And did they get wired? I'm trying to clarify. They 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 didn't get wired by us. And did you make a request? And, did, and did Compton PD? No, I didn't request that. It's their case. That's the whole point. Why, if if it was that important, why didn't they wire it? If someone, if I'm doing a search warrant in my jurisdiction, it's my case. I am going to do everything in my power to try and develop information. I'm sitting here in Indian country, as, as far as I'm concerned. I was uncomfortable. I won't speak for Mike. I was uncomfortable in Compton. I mean, I'd already gotten the word, so to speak, from the two big agencies. And then when I got there and I saw certain things happening, I just went, what is this place? And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about Tim Brennan or his partner. There were other people. There were a lot of people seemed interested in what we were doing. And there was a lot of questionable things went on. And in fact, we've talked about one or two of them earlier. You want to add anything? No, I'm just saying like the gentleman looking through the case file and for some reason pulling out photos for whatever reason. And then people being identified as death row employees. What Uh, photos were, what photos, the six packs? No, these would have been photos from our case file. So there would have been some photos. The crime scene? I don't remember if they were. Yeah, they would have been from that part of it because there there isn't really anything from the autopsy in there that's, you know, nothing like the photo that went public. And uh, But we had a lot of crime scene photos and such. 
<clears throat> and I just remember, again, the guy had all these photos out and he seemed disturbed when I caught him and he was pushing them back in. So I'm hoping he never made any copies of anything as far as photos or reports. It was just, there were a lot of people interested in the whole thing. And from the information that came out during the course of the investigation, yeah, well, there's probably a reason why so many people were interested in there. Indeed. So 25 years later, how surprised are you that this case has really endured? Oh, I think it'll go on forever. I, I'm i not sure if you name the person who shot Tupac, it would go away. There's just, there's too much of a story here. I think it's, uh, you know, like we've talked before, I think he's become more famous in death than he was in life. I mean, look at all the rumors that come out. I'd love you to wax philosophical about all this, if you would, looking back, just your your thoughts. Well, I guess it's, it would just would have been nice if people would have been more cooperative early on. I guess people are saying things, well, a person anyhow, that you would tend to believe was there the time of the shooting. Anybody that was there when the shooting occurred, be them a person of interest or a witness, really is really never said anything that was beneficial as far as identifying someone. You had all kinds of different details about what happened, and those details were different even amongst all of them. And you had a lot of hearsay information come out of it from other people and I'm sure you've heard expert gang guys. You've heard the people that were members of the gangs talk about, yeah, there was this conversation going on and, and people were saying this, but no one wanted to say who was saying what. And I don't know, it would just would have been nice if some of that, even if one person would have, come forward, I think that would have made a big deal. If they'd have given something other than, yeah, a white car and a black arms and a guy shooting. One thing that's fascinating to me is that you, longtime veteran of law enforcement, and Keefe D, longtime person getting in trouble with the law in terms of convictions on drug cases, both of you agree on one thing in that the case had difficulty being solved because people wouldn't talk. Well, yeah, I remember seeing somewhere where Keefe D made that comment. I don't think the interviewer liked the answer because it was obvious to me he didn't like it because then he sort of led him into the response he wanted him to say. So, But I thought that was striking that you both, well, I've heard you say it before and others say it before from Las Vegas Metro, but never Keefe D. No, and 
actually early on you heard other law enforcement say these this is the kind of thing they've dealt with before but apparently that doesn't matter so uh it w would it have been nice to have solved this case absolutely anybody that thinks that having this case unsolved is beneficial to the police department or the city of Las Vegas is uh, they're out of their minds. Why would you want to continue on with this? Wouldn't it be better to have it done, have someone prosecuted or whatever to, to make everybody happy and be done with it? Because it's gone on and on and on and people will continue to badmouth Las Vegas for whatever reason. And, you know, uh, I would believe it'll probably go on for a lot longer unless something happens to change the outcome of it. It is kind of funny how it's only Las Vegas now. I mean, I thought Biggie was kind of a larger than life person like Tupac, but you just get the impression no one seems to care that much about that side. Or at least I must be missing these, the bylines or the stories about it. I don't know. <laughs> you mean because the bylines about Las Vegas Metro have gone one way? And well, you don't ever, you don't, yeah, you don't really hear. It's always about Tupac. I don't hear a lot about Biggie, especially, I don't know if there's that many stories out there about it today that there are like uh, currently going on with Tupac. I know that Biggie's mom was definitely involved with it. She she seemed more involved with it than Shakur's mom. I mean, Afeni Shakur was involved, but not in the limelight. I I guess I'd use. She did some TV interviews, and we're gonna get to the we're gonna get to all that too. Twenty five yeah. years later, for me, twenty five years later, I am in some ways surprised to be doing this story, this podcast as well in that I didn't follow everything that happened. And in researching this podcast, my eyes got big as saucers. I'm really shocked by a lot of things that transpired. I will also say another stunning thing 25 years later is that the players that I was writing about, doing stories about 25 years ago, are largely the players who are talked about 25 years later. I wrote an article about Orlando Anderson. Keefe D's name was mentioned 25 years ago. You know, and it was about Orlando Anderson talking about Death Row and Suge Knight. Suge Knight still being talked about. I would have never guessed 25 years ago when I walked in and met you at Las Vegas Metro PD that we would be talking again 25 years later? Or would I have guessed that I would be seeing 20-year-olds in t-shirts with Tupac's picture on them? And again, there, we were talking one day and you saw the same thing. I would have really never guessed it. But I did know when I did the story 25 years ago that it had cultural importance in terms of- Oh yeah. For me, I thought for this generation, this is like John Lennon 
being killed. I thought so 25 yeah. years ago. It, that, and then Biggie too. But when Tupac was killed, I did know, and I don't know that everyone I was around in a workplace setting felt that, but I definitely, un, unquestionable. So having a look at some other events that it have happened in the last 25 years, the Compton Police Department, of which you speak, no longer exists. And I don't know how many times you went there, but I know one time I was there, we were coming out, I was just a photographer and sound man, and there were shots being fired, and we had to duck in the parking lot. And apparently there were some other questions about Compton PD beyond the questions that you had. And Compton PD has been taken over by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. So you're, you're aware of that. And yes. I was just reading about the Sheriff's Compton station and they apparently have a gang within the Sheriff's Department called the Executioners who have tattoos and AKA imagery that celebrates deputy shootings. So in looking, really? hmm. in looking back to Compton and what things are going on the last couple of years, it does make somebody go, hmm, because apparently there was also a report of a man, a black man who was stopped, his ribs were broken and he wasn't booked for several hours, like five or six hours after that happened. And ultimately they just let him go. So one does wonder what's going on in Compton, Frank Alexander, your relationship continued with him after the investigation, even after you finished being part of the homicide investigation, correct? Correct. And how aware were you when he passed away? You know, I did not know he'd passed away for quite a while. I'm trying to remember how I found out. I just, when I did hear about it, someone told me he'd, it was a suicide. And in the beginning, I had a question about that. But over time, I've heard different stories that I guess his wife said he was having problems and all, which I guess makes sense because we've already talked about it. I really think Frank took it hard that Tupac Shakur died on his watch. And maybe, you know, who knows if that didn't have some bearing on it. I don't know. But he had a lot of demons inside him, I think. Yes, and he grew up in a very violent environment. And from what I understand, he was suicidal even before. I, I mean, in reading his book, it seemed to be an issue. So Yeah, I mean, really, I got to know him better after everything was his parting from death row. So like I said, when he was in the beginning, he was still a death row employee. I'm sure he had some loyalty to them. He Not talked for long. about things. Yeah. He, I mean, he wasn't with death row for things. long. Yeah. He was talked about things. We didn't talk about every, everything. I mean, 
He didn't say anything about the beat down at the MGM, and he's on videotape there. He never said anything he, about that to you. No, he didn't talk about. He didn't say admit that until after the fact. Once him and Death Row, there was no loyalty to Death Row then. In fact, they were treating him poorly. Uh, then he came clean on that, and uh, but again, I still don't think he knew that much directly about what happened. I'm sure he heard all the rumors just like everybody else did, but he never had any hard facts because he never came up. He never told me about it, and I don't recall any of it ever coming out in any of his projects. It seems that so many of the people involved in the case passed away as well. Mike and I, Mike was still working. We every time Your partner. You'd, yeah, you'd get something, a news story. I said, dang, here's another one. What's the deal here? If you want to start throwing conspiracy theories in, everybody's getting killed off. I said, and conspiracies are a wonderful thing, but proving it's going to be the deal, you know. But I, I'm trying to remember... I don't know, was there 10, 12 people at least directly related to this or dead? And then whoever knows what else. I, you know, there's probably people behind the scenes that I don't know about. But A lot of deaths. And the Wright family, Reggie Wright Jr. and Reggie Wright Sr., again, have met both, very affable. And as a reminder, Sr. was a lieutenant with Compton PD and went on to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. Both That's were understood. Both were federally indicted for drug trafficking. And one thing about it, it was funny in the indictment, it listed them both as being Crips. You know, and that's been a few years ago. Correct. Right? I think 19, 2018, somewhere in there. I just learned about that when we were doing this. Here it is, Same 2021. Year. I Same didn't year. read about it, but I remember either you or someone sending the story, and I thought, what do you mean they're Crips? I says, one's a retired cop. And then Junior had been a cop. He'd been a Compton cop. I says, so I don't know where the, who identified them as Crips? I don't In remember. In the federal exactly. indictment. Okay, well, they got it from somewhere, you know, and I don't know, was that FBI or DEA or who? I don't know who the agency I have to double-check the, the, the yeah. agency, but it was curious not only because they come from law enforcement, and I am not certain whether Reggie Wright Sr. did time, but Reggie Wright Jr. did, but what, I mean, curious beyond them being in law enforcement is that there was so much red with death row. I mean, red was always affiliated with the Bloods. So on top of everything else, very curious. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I'm sure the gang folks understand everything about it. Gives me a headache trying to figure it out. So I figure well, there's people that like to work that stuff. So let them puff, P Diddy, whoever, whatever you want to call them. This guy's a businessman. His job is to make money. 
not to spend it frivolously on that kind of stuff. He may spend it frivolously on parties and stuff like that, but I'm sure the guy has enough knowledge to know he doesn't need to pay a million dollars if that was his idea. He didn't have to pay that kind of money to get someone knocked off. Well, Forbes says he was worth $740 million in 2019. Whew, okay. <laughs> and that his earnings in 2020 were $55 million, mostly from vodka. I remember even being in Malawi where I was born, seeing kids running around wearing Sean John clothing. I guess he sold that company. Yeah. I also remember that people within death row had a grudging respect for bad boy they were even saying we should get someone like lil kim you may not have heard of lil kim but she was i I have actually have heard the name so oh okay well i wasn't sure but they they certainly had a grudging respect and 25 years later it looks like p diddy did pretty well i remember when i was investigating the biggie case in new york i tried to get an interview with him and he never responded so I ended up going to his, I found the address for his office. I went there and knocked on the door, but never got as far. I just got as far as a receptionist, but I tried. But he seems to have done pretty well after that. Far better than Suge Knight. Well, we're going to get to Suge. But first, <laughs> Biggie. Biggie will be forever linked to Tupac, even in the investigation that right. you were part of. And I remember asking his mother, Valletta Wallace, who indeed was very strong, very committed to finding out who killed her son to this day. You can see evidence of that. But I did ask her, actually, after listening to one of her son's songs, Long Kiss Goodbye, and it really sounds like a reference to the killing of, of Tupac. But I just asked her in general, why such violence? Because you think you're going to manifest, you know, what what you write and sing about will be manifested. And it certainly seems that way with Biggie and Tupac. But I said, why this content? And she said, her son told her that this is what the record labels want. And as long as he can make money doing that, he's going to do that. And some statistics have said that 80% of the consumers of rap are white. Others say it's closer to 60%. My question philosophically is who is to blame? Who is accountable when somebody maybe has the choice between selling drugs on a street corner or writing violent lyrics? I mean, that, that's something for me that I pondered in the process of doing both of the songs. Why is this type of content so popular? But I know I'm waxing philosophical, but in 2021, the most popular genre of music is hip hop. In 2021, next is pop, 20% of the popularity. And I know someone who likes country music, and that's 9% of the pie. So more than double of the consumers like hip hop. So be that as it may. Death Row in these 25 years, I don't know if you know it because I knew it in the process of investigating the story, 
when Suge Knight's uh, re probation, they had that revocation hearing and he didn't do well. His wife, Sharitha, estranged wife, she took over. Reggie Wright Jr. at one point was in charge of death row. At one point, Michelle, one of his girlfriends, Suge Knight, in 2006, death row filed for bankruptcy. And since then, death row was sold to, I guess, a variety of entities, including Hasbro, the people who make the toys. And that's why some people were saying toy pack instead of two pack. And apparently earlier this year, there was another buyer. But death row, it really doesn't exist anymore the way it was. Yeah, I was just saying, if they aren't doing anything, why does someone buy the company? I don't... I wonder if it's for the branding. Just to own the label or the brand, the name? I know that's an important thing, I guess. For millions and millions of dollars. But I also, I was doing a story with Little Richard, and I remember him asking me about Death Row and who ran it and who, he wanted to know everything about it. So there was certainly a fascination with Death Row which really no longer exists. I've never heard of anything. No. So Suge Knight, 25 years later, I actually ran into him a few years ago at my bank, which was kind of shocking. And he was not very happy with the service he received. And I, I had my camera, I was gonna take a picture and he shut it down. He didn't recognize me, which I took to be a, a good thing. He didn't want me to take his picture. He was really mad at the tellers. And when he left, I tried to tell one of the tellers, do you know who, who that was? And they didn't. So again, another big change in 25 years. And then I saw him another time in the parking lot of a fancy hotel. And I, I was there because there were a lot of these kids gathered around to see Justin Bieber. He was at the hotel. And I thought, you know, that would be kind of an interesting story waiting for Justin. But while I was waiting, I saw Suge in a red pickup truck, sure enough. So things have changed. He was sentenced to 28 years in prison for the death of a man during a hit and run accident on the set of the movie Straight Out of Compton. And that man was Terry Carter. And he pleaded no contest to manslaughter. And if things go the way you might suspect, according to the sentencing, he will be in prison for the rest of his life. Any thoughts about him and your encounters? I'm my personal feel my personal feeling is with everything that went on and all the finger pointing, I'm just surprised he's not dead. He's a big guy. He's a big target. So if if you want to buy into the P. Diddy wanting Tupac and Suge dead. Well, Tupac was dead in 96. I says, so what prevented it from continuing on and finishing off Suge? Well, it didn't happen. I don't know. I've never heard of anything where anybody has tried to shoot him. There have been some incidents. I, I haven't followed it, you know, and I would see Suge in the news occasionally, but there... Have, there was at least one incident at a nightclub. That he got shot at? Yes. Oh, okay. 
Now, when you saw him at the bank and when he was in his red pickup, did he have an entourage or was he alone? He was alone both times. No bodyguard. That that never happened before. When when he was the CEO of Death Row, I, he always had a bunch of people around him. I'm sure that pissed him off. I mean, the guy is used to being the center of attention and now he's the Lone Ranger. No, it was surprising to me to see our, because the last time I saw him in person, he was in jail behind a plexiglass you know, window. So to see him and as you say, no bodyguards either time, but I am now recalling that interview that was done with Mob James, James McDonald, the right. who provided security along with his brother Alton, who is dead. And he said that all those people who worked for Suge Knight and who worked for Death Row, they just went back to the streets, back, back to what they were doing to survive before, and they didn't get anything out of it. No, because all the cars weren't in their names, and yes. It was back to the life that they had before. So I thought that and was... They probably weren't, they weren't probably getting paid much either. Well, that, that can open up a whole bunch of other uh, worms uh, to talk about, but yeah. that's certainly what Mob James said. The pay wasn't good. So that's kind of striking. But it, it, working at Death Row for the first time, they got a check. They got... Social Security. So it changed with the end of death row. Tupac's mother, she founded the Tupac Amaru Foundation a year after her son passed away, trying to do good. And she certainly wasn't as public as Valletta Wallace, Biggie's mother, in terms of being that much of a public figure. And there's Tupac and Biggie. And I would say there's no conspiracy that their music is definitely still alive. So always, so we're wrapping up here for the official podcast, 25 years later. And you can say the Tupac and Biggie murders, they're right up there with Jack the Ripper, the Jimmy Hoffa case. I was, the other day, I was looking at something, and uh, it was, well, I guess it's not surprising. It's just when you look at it, it says, the top, quote, unsolved or open murders. And, you know, I think Jack the Ripper is probably the top one because, of course, historically, that's gone on and on forever and ever and ever. But, and, you know, you've heard all kinds of things about Jimmy Hoffa and the Black Dahlia, and, but the Tupac, the Tupac and Biggie murders are actually consolidated into one thing as part of that list, which, yeah, yeah. not that that's necessarily good company, but that's how people think of it, you know? And it is, it's a shame that they can't, someone can't say this is it, it's over with, but I, I truly don't think it's going to end all of the drama that goes on today, people will find something else to talk about. I mean, I I even see it. I don't watch the news, but I know my wife does some things and 
you see some other rapper or person copying Tupac or bad mouthing Tupac. And it's mostly Tupac. You really don't hear much about Biggie. That's which is kind of strange to me, but even the sentiment that Tupac is still alive, but not Biggie. Yeah, you don't hear anybody talking about Biggie still being alive, but it's it's Tupac. And uh there are some bizarre stories that I've heard come out between what was it, the Navajo reservation? He was up there. I thought, really? Really? <laughs> Uh, if you've been to the Navajo Reservation, I mean, the Native Americans have had a rough life too. And you just think, why would he go to Navajo land? And then Cuba, I guess Cuba's been a place. Hasn't Malaysia? He been seen down in Afri- hasn't he been seen down in Africa once oh, or twice? That I haven't uh, heard. Yeah. Uh, just all kind of, well... And wasn't there a big to-do over an election here a year or so ago in Kentucky or somewhere? Some guy had the name Tupac Shakur. And the governor (laughs) thought it was fake. Yeah, I was just going, good Lord, but that's the way it goes. I think another politician was fired because of his love for Tupac. Well, there's a lot of people out there. And my thought is, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what they like, that's what they like. That's that's what's great about things. Everybody has a different like of music or different things. As you know, we go off into the sunset for this episode. The reason I really wanted to talk to you is because I didn't see. I talked to you twenty five years ago. Twenty five years later, and looking at information, I couldn't find you. That was intentional. I mean, I I have no problem talking to you about it. We'll see if anybody cares. I I suspect it won't be pleasant, but that's not why I did the work I did. It wasn't to be popular or well-liked. It was to solve things. So, unfortunately, this isn't one of those cases that you can, like, scratch from the books. It's still an open investigation. So, as far as I know, it is. And as you said, you started police work because you admired police, a particular well, policeman. Well, I did. And it, granted, I, was, I grew up in a little different period of time than folks today. And uh, things were done a little differently back then. And uh, you know, I think today law enforcement's a whole different job. And I'm glad I don't have to do it now. I'm glad to be retired. I don't have a clue what has been given to the investigators on this case since I left in December of 2001. So there could be all kinds of stuff in there. I don't know. I'm not consulted on anything. I shouldn't be consulted on it at this point. So, and I'm not going to sit here and be critical of what they have done or not done because I don't know. But again, it hurt extra because of the criticism from law enforcement? Well, I think you're always going to not take it well when other law enforcement says things about you. I mean, keep in mind, I don't know where they get their information and such, but 
the words that have come out have been after the fact. And again, what their vested interest is in this, I don't know. I mean, I could sit here and through hearsay and very circumstantial evidence, say all kinds of things that probably people want to hear. Okay, go what, ahead. What does it? What does it? What does it do for the case? So, got you. Anything positive come out of doing this podcast and looking back twenty five years? Well, I guess for the first time, whether anybody listens to it or not, they're hearing what I'll say I did because I'm not going to speak for the other people, but. They're going to hear what happened from my perspective. And, you know, they may listen to it. They may not. They may not like it. They may like it. I, you know, that I'm not here to change anybody's mind because it's quite evident since doing this that people have got their opinions about stuff. And, I believe I told you from the very beginning when you talked to me, I says, I'm not here to change people's minds, to make them like me, to view how things happened differently. I says, I'm just here to pass along information. They can take the information for, for the way they want. And yes, you did tell me that. So... Anything else you would like to add? No, I can't think of anything. And anything in terms of thoughts, what we'll be talking about 25 years from now? Well, I'll be dead, so it really doesn't matter, I figure. If I'm alive 25 years from now, I'm probably in a chair drooling over myself, so I won't know. I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with you anyhow, so... But I, I can see this going on forever and ever. I mean, the guy's popular. I don't, I don't see, I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to compare it to other musical entertainers. I mean, there's musical entertainers that didn't die a tragic death. They just died from old age that are still popular. So maybe that, you know, maybe because the way he passed changes that a little bit. And I just think that, uh, yeah, I don't see the Tupac Shakur legacy per se going away. Unless some, unless some other person comes along and just dazzles everybody and, you know, takes their mind off of them. But I just don't see that happening. Well, I thought it was very important to talk to you in terms of just a reflection of what you have to say in really in somewhat a historical sense, because people will be talking about this 25 years from now. And all the reading I did, you heard nothing from directly the original investigators. So this podcast has accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, since we've done this, I've learned that I've been quoted saying some things that I never said that I wouldn't have known about. And well, you know, it's easy to talk about people and accuse them of saying things when you don't speak out. And uh, unfortunately, people don't understand it. I've always thought that there's always two sides to a story and then the truth is somewhere in the middle. So you've kind of, yeah, I'm telling you the truth as far as what I did. Okay. People can, people can either accept it or they can't. That's, that's just the way they are. And it, it really doesn't matter to me if they accept it or not. It, it really doesn't. I says, at least I've told you something that hasn't come out. I know those people that have tried to reach out to me to do some sort of interviews for those shows, A&E and stuff. I'm not sure that we would have gone into the amount of detail that this was going to go into, though. And I thought that was really valuable to get down into the detail to respond to what people have said you have said to respond to how people have described the investigation, but to get it from your view. I felt very fortunate going into doing this story 25 years ago and that I did have sources within death row records, within Compton PD and within Las Vegas Metro. So all of that helped deliver a better story as far as I'm concerned. All these years later, a lot of people have spoken, whether they were actually connected to the case or saying that they were connected to, to the case. And there was really such little information from you directly or for from your investigative team. And I, I'm pretty sure the rest of your investigative team is never going to talk at all. Probably not. I know there were doubts or questions about me doing this. I mean, doubts what? That? Well, it's just that. How you, you would know be what? perceived? Or. It, it was. I don't know if it was so much being perceived. I mean, I'm just trying to figure a way to present this in that even if they were if they were if they were going to talk if other people were going to talk about it, they're going to tell you basically what I said. Now they're I can't speak for some things that maybe someone else did that I wasn't around for. You know? It uh None of us can. I, I just I just think that the big question is what is going to be productive as far as the, for the case. And personally, from what we've talked about, I don't see that there's anything that we've talked about that it was productive in the sense of getting this case done to the point where people call it solved or closed or whatever. 
I says, there's only certain people that can do that, and that's whoever's got the case now. I mean, you can have someone from California, from Germany, from South Africa. They can say everything they want, but they aren't going to resolve the case unless they produce something that is substantial to help with that. And thus far from our talking, I've only heard one person that's produced a confession that is of interest, but apparently there must be some question mark about it because I haven't heard anything where that person has been prosecuted yet. And basically that person's confessed to conspiracy to murder <laughs> more than once, multiple times. And by his confession, he almost confesses to being the murderer, if you go by some of the eyewitness accounts. So how do you how do you interpret that? I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not on the case, so there's nothing I'm going to be doing about it. But getting back to the concerns regarding talking with me, they would, they would be based on concern about you, concern about what exactly? I think it's more how people are going to take it. It's not, I don't see them being concerned with you. Uh, the only reason I talk to you is because I, I trust you as far as it, because I got that from our America's Most Wanted story. I mean, you did, you were trying to do a story on an important event. All right. Uh, I wasn't up on everything that followed along afterwards, but I just figured based on that, and we've had conversations since then over the last 25 years for different things when you're teaching and such. But most of our conversations up to this have had nothing to do with this case. I mean, I've talked to you about other projects you've had that actually have nothing to do with law enforcement. So. No, I have an interest in doing, I've done a lot of different other stories where I was not, I wasn't aware that some of my stories from America's Most Wanted that I'd done about Tupac had been put on YouTube. And one I did about Biggie Smalls is put on YouTube. I wasn't aware of that either. So. Well, you you kind of feel the way I do then when I, hear about me saying something to somebody that I didn't say. So Well, the only difference is, well, we'll see what happens after the podcast. People haven't <laughs> put words in my mouth, per se. I have been written about in some books, and everything I've seen has been accurate. Uh, written directly about me. Some of the things written about, like the affidavit that I, the search warrant affidavit, not so much. But I'm not referenced at all in that. So I am not in the situation where people have said that I've said things that I would dispute. Well, and I know since I've learned from at least one book that something as simple as my career path was wrong. So there's a, to me, that's a simple faux pas, so to speak, that if you'd done any kind of research, would have known that that wasn't, I mean, 
it wouldn't have been hard to research that. So there's a hiccup that that's just a minuscule one. So what major hiccups are there in the book? One. And then again, since uh, since that time, people have said I've verbalized certain things that I didn't. And then there have been people that have talked to me that have presented the facts a little different than they really were presented. But, you know, that happens all the time in this world. We see it all the time. So telephone, isn't that that game telephone that a message starts out one way and then by the time it goes through. So, well, I am pleased to have had the opportunity to just put it on the record and folks can hear for themselves and make judgments for themselves. That's my approach on many things is you hear this, you hear that, you make a decision yourself on what you believe to be true. And I believe Tupac's murder was his case, the podcast, will give people an opportunity to make their own judgments. Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, a lot of people have made their own judgments now. I don't expect it to change them. If it does in a positive way, fine. If it doesn't, well, so be it. It says, at least I guess you've gotten to hear from me and what my perspective of it was. And that was my goal. That was my goal. Instead of other people telling everyone my perspective. <laughs> That was my goal. And I think mission accomplished. Okay. So thank you. Well, actually, that didn't work out so well for somebody saying mission accomplished, but. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm getting into politics again. No, um, no, I'd stay away from that. You know what? Mission accomplished. So thank you very much. Okay. Well. Good luck. On Unless it. there's anything else you'd like to add. If you no. if there's a name you want to give me or no. Yeah, I, I give you credit initials. For no, oh, yeah. Initials would definitely answer the question. Let's see if I can encrypt it somehow and then you try to figure out the encryption. Yeah, I can't I can't do that off the top of my head. <laughs> give me, have, I'll take it. I, now, I'll uh I'll I'll just I'll just say that the the person that did the killing has been known for quite a while. It's just a matter of the right opportunity for that person to be named. And they, again, these folks that are in handling the case now, they're the ones that are going to have to do it because it's their case. I'm what benefit is there for me to say a name? And now that's going to, that would put a tremendous amount of unnecessary pressure on them. They, they, they're the ones that know what's going on and what they can and can't do. I have all the confidence in the world of whoever the investigators are in Las Vegas now. I mean, they wouldn't be there if they didn't have some abilities. And like I said, it's been 25 years 
so it's been 20, 20 years since I've been in almost 20 years since I've been directly involved with it over 20 years. I'm sure there's, well, I know for a fact that there has been some things developed since then, just because some of the people I've worked with that were still doing some work, you know, within the cold case thing after they retired. So would they be on the same track as you were in terms of your belief of who was guilty? I'll say, because I've said it before, there's two or three people that are on the same track as me as far as who did it. Anything else you'd like to add on this 25 years later? No, I think, I mean, I've talked about this a whole lot more than I've ever talked about it in my life. <laughs> and I've since learned after talking to you, a lot more things have been said than I realized over the years because of the uh, Tupac case. Uh, I, I probably wish, that's probably one reason why I wish you didn't contact me because I wouldn't have known about all this nonsense that's come out since, you know, because I didn't follow it. But since since you've reached out to me and you've been sending me stuff, I'm going, holy moly, this is, uh, a lot of people don't like me from what I gather. And it the, the reason they don't like me is silly, but I guess just the way it is. <laughs> So ignorance would have been bliss? Oh, yeah, I won't even go there. It just, that would just open another thing. I just, I just say it's, it's, it's sad, but I've been called names before on other cases. So be it. That's just the way it goes. But on some level, you think it would have been better not to know? Because in the course of investigating this story, I have passed along information about various stories and interviews I've seen. And I was shocked too, quite frankly, because 25 years ago, I didn't see any of this, none. Again, I understand that you investigated other murders other than Tupac, but just focusing, since that's the focus of the podcast, focusing on Tupac, Looking back 25 years, what's been the worst of it? The worst of it? <laughs> I'm not attacking you, but it's since you contacted me. <laughs> Learning all the things that have been said, that would be the worst of it. Because <laughs> I, I had no idea. You know, apparently people like to point fingers and do the blame game, so I'm... Apparently, I'm I'm hearing or reading that there's a lot of people pointing the finger at me, and maybe not just me. I'm saying, but I guess because there were other people involved with it. But I think probably because of the couple of things I did with Frank, probably made me more uh, visible, so to speak, for certain people. Well, I I will say that while going back and doing research for this podcast, I wasn't, oh boy, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of mud that's been slung at LVMPD. 
I wasn't aware of that going into it. However, going into it, there was a lot of mud to be found. And part of the mud was slung maybe a couple of years after Tupac died. I would say that's mm -hmm. when it started to be slung. And you weren't aware of that. Because I, in I because there's a book that was written shortly thereafter that talks about something that has been cloned over the years, the notion that you didn't want to solve the case, you collectively, because it was going to bring political forces against you and the whole notion that Las Vegas was family friendly. That notion first percolated, I would say, two years after. Well, one, I never read, I've never read a book about this, so I have no idea what they're saying other than when people throw something out. Right, that's what I'm saying. They didn't yeah. throw that out. People who'd read the book hadn't thrown that out at you? Uh, most of my friends haven't read the books. So, <laughs> I mean, some people have, and they may have thrown some things out, but, uh, you know, I would say probably more hurtful would be some of the comments that have come from other law enforcement agencies that I've since learned about. But I guess they, those people are perfect, and that's the way they've worked all their lives. They've never had anything. Everything's, the stars have lined up, and things have worked just peachy keen for them. So be it. You know, armchair quarterbacking's a wonderful thing. You know, I could sit here and sling names on all kinds of cases across the country. I have no vested interest in it. And by me saying something about it, it may harm their investigation. Well, you know what? I'm not going to do that. That's that's not my purpose. But, you know, other some people have different agendas. I'm kind of afraid how bad it's going to bite me, but whatever, <laughs> you know. You asked, I said, okay, I'll talk to you and and we'll go over it and let people to make their own opinions and we'll see what happens. But hey, it was it was good. I enjoyed talking about it. Like I said, I've said a far more than I've ever talked about before. And uh people can take it for the, what they want. It really doesn't matter. I'm just, you know. Doing doing it for you, Lena. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know if it's gonna bite me on the badonka donk either. <laughs> However, I feel that you know, hearing it straight from you, there's value. All these years people have talked about you, talk trash. <laughs> yeah, apparently because I wasn't up on it, but now I am. <laughs> In reading it, that was my take. Oh, there are all these references. So as a reporter, I want to know more. Yeah. And well, you provided that. As best I can do, you know. Well, here we go. All right. Well, it was fun. Thank you. Let, let's not do it in another 25 years. <laughs> <laughs>
don't worry, he'll be back for your questions. 25 years after the murder of Tupac Shakur, no arrests have been made. And thanks to all of you who have submitted questions for now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. And for any of you who have answers regarding what happened 25 years ago, please send me a private message via TupacMurder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lennon Ozizwe. That's me. I also created the music and artwork. And since you've asked, I have now made available my artwork via Society6. You'll find it under Nozizwe Originals, again on Society6. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T. Suwundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Special thanks to Joe Mayer and Annabelle Bedrio. You've been listening to Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next on Tupac's murder was his case. Well, coming up next will be your questions. Lots of your questions. Questions about Orlando Anderson and so much more. I've been reading your questions. I can't wait to ask them. You've been listening to Lennon Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. An Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one.